God bless her. <laughs> she really fought through a lot of my defiance. She fought through a lot of my misbehavior and said, like, no, you're going to learn and you're going to be great. And I really feel that um, being homeschooled is the reason why I'm in education. I laugh and always say that's the reason why I graduated high school and even went on to college is because I had a very unique K-12 kind of experience that was perfect for my my upbringing. Do you feel like there was a difference between teacher mom and mom mom? And if so, like, what was it and when did it kick in? Oh, definitely. Like, she often struggled with me. We're very opposite personalities. Very opposite. And she would get frustrated with me really easily. Um, she never, she didn't ever give up on me, even as mom mom. <laughs> but I think as teacher mom, she found my energy contagious. And so it just fed her ideas in teaching and in creating projects and making like these real life applications and taking learning outside of the classroom or the dining room, um, taking, <laughs> taking it outside of the textbook and really making it, making it exciting. And a lot of your experience now is, of course, in more traditional settings in the classroom. So I'm just really curious, how is uh, being homeschooled really affect your uh, vision for teaching and learning in more traditional settings? I've absolutely had to learn education as it's like traditional education since I stepped into a college classroom. So the first time I was in a traditional classroom was 17 years old as a college freshman. Um, and I think since then, I've been trying to understand what traditional education is, this concept of conformity, because I was definitely raised with a very different foundational principle of what education is and what schooling is. It was never about conformity. It was really about individuality. It was really about um, not just sitting here and doing papers and tests, but it was about going out and discovering the world as a participant. And so I'm always wrestling with this. Okay, I see this as traditional education and I didn't have it. But then I see this amazing thing, especially for a child like me who was defiant and full of energy and didn't sit down. And I'm thinking, like, there's so much out there. If we could couple how I started school or how I did school growing up with some really strong structural components of traditional education – like, what would it really look like for kids, and how could we transform their experiences? Mm. So I definitely have a, I always say I have a visceral response to any classroom I walk into. I don't, I'm not ever like, oh, it's fine, it's whatever. It's like, this is amazing, this is perfect, this is what education should be, or this is absolutely not working for kids because of the kid that I was. And then most recently, you started the Harvard School Leadership Program. Mm -hmm. So a question I have is just, at what point did you realize that you want to make the transition from teacher to school leader? So after I I was in the classroom for um, a little over eight years, saw the same challenges no matter what school I was at. And first of all, I saw the, the struggles with students with special needs. So whether it was behavior issues or whether it was learning issues, I just saw that they were the ones who had the most to gain and the most to lose. And my heart really went out to them. And so my first step when I noticed that was to um, become a special ed teacher. And I thought, this is perfect. I'm going to be in special ed now instead of gen ed. And I did special ed for quite a few years. I became department head at an all-boys charter school. Loved that. Like, again, a really transformational experience um, to be a teacher there. But... 
the, the second challenge that I saw was with teachers and the fact that teachers were, they never felt valued. They always felt like they were just cogs in the mill, if you will. And, and there's so much blame often on teachers if a student doesn't achieve. Or, and I'm not saying there are not bad teachers out there. I mean, I, that's a whole other conversation. But I was seeing that really great teachers were leaving the profession for anything else. I mean, some of them were going to work at Starbucks. Some of them were going to, you know, back to school to go into medicine or whatever it was. We were losing amazing people because they were not valued. They were not developed. And um, I became a department head and really started focusing, wanting to focus on developing my teachers. But I didn't feel like I had the tools or the resources to do that. So I had the passion. I had the desire. I saw the need. But I needed to really build my own skills. So I decided to leave the classroom because I believe in teachers and I believe in developing the adults. Um, and sometimes it's still a difficult choice because I, I do miss like the kid interaction, but I think that there's something really powerful about knowing that I can be a part of developing and appreciating and really recognizing um, teachers and hopefully like really professionalizing the profession in a way that makes them feel feel like it's a worthwhile career to stay in. I think it's really interesting that you saw a need throughout, you know, every school environment that you were in, in special education, being a place that really had a lot of areas for opportunities. And I'm wondering what kind of concepts or ideas from special education that you think work really well might be something that teachers in a traditional classroom, mainstream classroom, could apply to help their students. So. I like the question, and I'm going to get to it, <laughs> but before I answer that, I want to make sure it's really clear that I think in education we spend a lot of time talking about the fragments, so whether it's gen ed or special ed, whether it's administrators or teachers, whether it's paraprofessionals or janitors. So we talk a lot about these fragmented pieces of people, but at the end of the day, they're all people that come together to make either a great school or a failing school. A mediocre school or whatever that is and so I get asked this question a lot and I've come I've played it over and over in my head like what is it that gen ed teachers could learn from special ed teachers or what is it vice versa well I do think that they're both really really great at a specific craft I think that we lose focus in that con in that question and in that conversation we lose focus on like what it means to be great at working with kids and so anything that I say is actually going to come off as pretty cliche. And you'll, and you'll kind of look at like, oh, there's no magic bullet. No, there is no magic bullet. Great teachers are great teachers. And it doesn't matter whether they're in low-income schools or affluent schools. It doesn't matter whether they're working with special ed kids or gen ed kids. It doesn't matter whether they're high school or elementary school. While there are differences in each of those, like nuances, great teaching is great teaching. One of the things that we see great teachers doing is respecting and drawing out the individuality of a child. I learned that as a special ed teacher, but I think I learned that because I had spent so much time as a gen ed teacher trying to do the traditional thing and then having to come back full circle to 
what made my K-12 experience so valuable and so exhilarating, and that was the fact that I was an individual, and my, my parents knew me and knew what would what key fit in the ignition of my engine to turn me on and get me excited. And I think we have to do that with all kids. And that tends to be something that special ed teachers are um, stereotypically good at. That's not always true, though. There are so many gen ed teachers that are really good at that. But I think that's one of the things that we, that I would say in my, in my personal experience, as I learn more about students with special needs and, and really learning about how to reach their individual needs, I became better at teaching the individual rather than teaching the class or teaching individual students, smaller groups, rather than teaching content. So I would, I would say that's one of the biggest things. I also think that there's overall in education a perception that by the time a get, kid gets to special ed, the teacher is given a little more autonomy in how they give content or how they, um, how they structure the class or how the kids sit or you know whether there's music and what transitions look like. There's a lot more autonomy because we're finally talking about the individual student. And I would love to see that happen on a more holistic level. So I'd love for every kid to be able, for us to look and say like, you know what, this class or this group in this class needs music. They need transitions with music. So one of our transitions today is gonna be music. This group over here really isn't, they are auditory learners. They need that direct instruction. Like, let me give it to them or hey, this kid over here is my constant talker. They're always talking. Let that kid give the instruction. And how do we begin to think creatively, especially on a gen ed level, or what I'll say a holistic level rather than just gen ed, about how we creatively get kids learning more than just content? How do we get them learning leadership skills and public speaking skills? How do we get them learning character qualities of kindness, of compassion, all within a, within a content-based classroom? And I think it can happen, but we have to get out of this mindset of sitting in rows. I think finding those things that make a student turn the key for their ignition, I think that is what changes a student from being the student that's acting out and being the side of the coin that maybe teachers didn't care for about you to being (laughs) the student that is leading and giving the instruction and being really engaged, that same student in that atmosphere. They're usually the contagious kids. I say, like, (laughs) harness that. Going back to your point about making sure that teachers feel valued, what what are ways that schools can take some of those lessons about individuality of the student and apply that to teachers as well? Kids are resilient. We do not give enough credit to how resilient children are. And I think that if we remember the resilience of children, it allows us to give adults more autonomy in using their creativity or using their ideas and experiences along with the content and put it all together to create something, create a package that doesn't look like what we usually deliver. But I I don't think we remember that kids are resilient. We think that they're fragile and that they're going to break with one, one wrong answer written on the board or one problem that they don't get a formula with, like they're just gonna crumple to pieces and sh- their whole life is gonna be shattered. I mean, I don't know how many times I'm like, no, this kid is gonna be fine, I promise. They're gonna, tomorrow they're gonna come back, ready to go. I, I think if we would remember that, 
we would then, as leaders of schools or as even thinkers in education, we would relinquish some of the reins and say, you know, you are a professional teacher. You have gone through training. I trust you and your professional expertise to at least try this. Now, that's not to say that if it goes really terribly over and over again, that you don't have to step in and be like, whoa, wait a second, you know? <laughs> Kids are resilient, but we do have some accountability. I rarely think that that happens, though, and I think that teachers are held under the thumb of accountability so much that they never really get to, they never get to explore the resilience of children. They never get to explore what it means to just let kids be problem solvers today. We, we talk to kids a lot, and we, well, we talk to teachers, and we tell them to talk to kids about who they're going to become in the future. Like when you go to college, when you become, when you grow up, and we forget that we need to empower our teachers to empower these kids to be changing today. A first grader can change something in his world today. An eighth grader could change this city today. High schoolers can change this nation. We see all the time that people that are empowered to be global thinkers now are, are doing it. And it's not about biological age. It's not about these, these different things that we're usually talking to them about. It's like, okay, well, you're 13. I want you to plan now for when you're 18. No, solve a problem right now. Give them a world problem and have them solve it. And empower the teachers to think about what they're passionate about, um, to become researchers in their own right, and then to lead these kids in that thought. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, uh, one of the things I want to get to, I know that you're in the second year of the Harvard School Leadership Program. Uh, let's talk just a little bit about that. How is it structured and what do you think you have learned throughout that experience? So last year, the, the second year, I'm currently in my residency, but last year I was um, a full-time student at Harvard doing my master's and then I was also a principal intern at a school there. So I worked about three days a week at a school. Um, and then this year, I am a full-time employee with the Chicago Board of Education, and I'm at an elementary school working right alongside the principal. Um, so it's really the day-to-day decision-making, like meetings, parents, setting a vision, accountability, teacher evaluation, student discipline, everything else that comes into play. On-the-job training. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Animal control sometimes. When you got, oh. we got ladybug infestations, squirrels running everywhere. I mean, you just never know what's going to happen. Oh. So <laughs> this this year is really about like the rubber meets the road. This is what it looks like to lead a school. Um, it's been an awesome experience this year. Uh, last year, I really ha- I had the opportunity to I'm going to say challenge a lot of my assumptions about fluent suburban schools. So working in in urban education, we always talk about low-income students, like how are they achieving predominantly black and brown students, how are they doing? Um, And so last year, I wanted to be in the polar opposite of that. I wanted to be in, I I just did not want it to at all be the same. So I was at um, Newton North High School, which is a very affluent suburban school in the Boston area. And I learned so much there about what it meant to like what this this cliche that we use this all children what does that really look like and for listeners of ours that might not be familiar with that concept what what is all children 
So we talk a lot about all children. If you, if, when you read about education right now, it's this idea that all children deserve equal access to an excellent education. And most often it's referring to students who are low income, students are minority students, are special needs students, are English language learners. So that's the focus. When you actually read about it in education literature, you know they're not going to, it's kind of the PC way of encompassing all these groups that a lot of people, I guess, would call the underdogs in education. And I had no problem taking that on. I love urban education. I love working. I've always loved working with the kids or the people just in general that everyone's tossing aside. I'm like, no, they're going to they're going to blow your minds. Just wait. That in in education in educational literature, it's usually not talking about affluent white kids. It's not talking about your, you know, immigrant children who are the sons and daughters of Ivy League professors or it's not it's really not talking about the kids who a lot of people might believe already have everything. And so it was really easy for me to just be like, "Oh yeah, I believe in all children." because I believe in black and brown kids achieving. I see it every day. But when I went to Newton, I realized, like I had this really narrow lens of all children. And it really was what everyone had kind of spoon fed. That it's my special ed kids and it's my black and brown kids and it's my English language learners, but it's not the kids at Newton. And so I was in this weird disequilibrium, thinking every day that I went there, like, do I have anything to offer them? Why do I feel this way? Why do I feel this way? And I started to realize it's because I was taught that all children were the kids that I worked with, not that all children really was all children. And so working at North made me think about the, the kids that were there whose parents were professors at MIT and Harvard and what what was my place in making sure that they got an excellent education what was my place in making sure that kids who had traveled the world more than I had were getting an excellent education we had a large transgender population and I'd never thought of like what is my role in making sure that they get a great education, that they have a place where they can flourish in the person that they want to be. That really fed into this year, making sure that I'm conscious of this all children in a broader lens here in Chicago. What are some things that other people can do to really bring a positive change to school districts, to schools, to um, students? So I would say the first one is you have to find your passion. I, I was not doing this work. I was not committed to this work when I was in undergrad. You know, it was going to be a job. And my first two years, while I was good at what I did, it was still a job. And then all of a sudden, the switch turned on and it became a passion. And it just, it drives everything that I do. Like, I am an educator. I want to see, like, great things for kids. Um, special ed, teacher development. Like, I can now articulate what it is that I'm really passionate about. And so I think that's the first thing that people have to do. And that can be done by anybody. It can be done by educators. It can be done by school leaders, district people. But it can also be done by those that are outside of of the school or even the school community. So that would be the first thing. The second is um, maybe a little bit more specific to educators. And that is to really figure out who it is that you want to develop. I think that we all 
in whatever our sphere is, we all have to develop someone else. I have found my passion now in developing teachers and really want to move forward in that. But there are people that want to develop um, administrators. I hope I find one of those as I become a school leader. Like I want somebody who want, who's passionate about developing me to become great. Education is about human capital, no matter what we want to say. So we have to be developing people. So find your group of people that you can influence and that you can really develop. That really reminds me of that one article you posted on our Twitter about you know reimagining a higher education. But one of the recommendations they gave is instead of declaring majors, declare missions. How cool would that be if wow. we're doing that in K through 12? You know, having students identify their own yes. mission and really working to develop that. That's awesome. <laughs> that you, I want to find this article. Now. You <laughs> have to share it with me. That's not her Twitter page. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's one of the things that I really liked about your idea around just really challenging students and empowering them to do something today because I think anyone can do that. A parent yeah. can do that. Whether it's your child, your niece or nephew, your neighbor, just taking students seriously mm-hmm. and or you know letting them be problem solvers. I think that's something that absolutely teachers can and should do but really anyone can do right you know people ask me all the time like who's your favorite teacher well growing up I had my mom having my mom as my teacher made me look outside of my classroom dining room (laughs) and say who could teach me so I've always looked at people in my life as mentors and as teachers and I think that you're right like once we stop thinking about teachers as teachers, like the people who get paid to spend seven hours a day in a classroom, and we start thinking about ourselves as teachers of the neighborhood kids or the person that sits next to us in the desk, we begin to connect the world, and we, we don't just connect the world like relationally, which is really important, but we connect the world through knowledge, and that knowledge and experience together with relationship, it's like the most powerful things. It's been so much fun um, getting to talk with you a little bit about your vision for education and some of your experience. Uh, We know that you're going to do really great things, and uh, we'll definitely be keeping in touch uh, to see how the next couple years go um, as an administrator in Chicago Public Schools. Thank you. Thanks so much for being here. This was really fun. Thank you, guys. Well, we really hope you guys liked hearing from Christina. The third part of this series will be connecting with Sarah, who is a faculty member at Harvard in the program that Cornelius and Christina are in. So we'll be hearing her perspective coming up next.